Thank you so much for coming out. Um, if you could, we're going to stand for worship, but I'm going to give us a little quick prayer so we get in the spirit of worship. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to come and celebrate all that you've done in our lives. Um, we look forward to praising your name and being together as a community. In your name I pray.
song of ascents. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people, both now and forevermore. The scepter of the wicked will not remain over the land allotted to the righteous, for then the righteous might use their hands to do evil. Lord, do good to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart, but those who turn to crooked ways, the Lord will banish with the evildoers. Peace be on Israel. Would you join me for prayer? Lord, we come to this place to worship. As these verses from Psalm indicate, we have been worshiping you for a long time. And you are worthy of that worship. So, while our minds may be focused on many things this morning, and our hearts may be divided by conflicts and uneasiness and worries, we ask this morning that you quiet our minds Give peace to our hearts. Allow us to focus on you and the fellowship we have together in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. I have a, well, you all know that I have a very colorful family. I mean, not these, the ones that I was born into. Um, And I owe a lot to them, most of it good. Not all of it, but most of it. By the time I was a preteen, My mom's father, my grandfather, Monroe, had taught me a very important lesson. And that lesson was that every story had multiple versions. At first I was confused. I'd listen to him and and then I got to catch on. Every, Every story, it sounded the same, but he told it in ways that it had multiple versions and multiple points. 
Now today, Pastor Nicole has asked me to focus on this passage from Luke on Martha and Mary. And I confess to you that I, when I first heard that, I thought, why is she telling me this two months in advance? That's a, I've preached this sermon so many times I could do it get with a half an hour notice. But you know God has surprises once in a while. So as I began to read this, I began to engage at a time, in a way in which I never had, in the story of Martha and Mary. So I want you to stand with me while we read the gospel. And we're reading from Luke chapter 10. And we'll begin in verse 38. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way home, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha, who was distracted by the preparations that had to be made, she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. This is the word of the Lord for us today. You may be seated. If you're a careful reader, you will know that there is more written about Mary and Martha and occasionally their brother Lazarus is thrown in than most of the other 12 disciples that Jesus called. And what I want to tell you today is that theirs is a word, a story worth fleshing out and worth telling. And that's what we're going to try to do today. Now, you may want to <coughs> keep this, your finger here, but you may want to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, because we're going to look at that in detail, because that's where most of their story is told. They're from Bethany. Did you know that? Yeah. Bethany is located on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. It's about two miles east of Jerusalem, which coincidentally is a Sabbath day's journey. So that made it close enough to have easy access to Jerusalem. Now, you don't think walking two miles is easy access, do you? Do you? Anybody think walking two miles is easy access? Well, I got news for you. There are a lot of people in the world who still think if you only have to walk two miles, it's not bad. So, oh, and the other thing. It meant you could get away from the crowds and get some relief if you're Jesus. Jesus knew this community well enough that on Palm Sunday, he told his disciples, 
where to find a colt for him to use in entering Jerusalem. And it's well documented that he frequented the Mount of Olives. Another thing you should know about their story <coughs> is that itinerant mission, or rabbis and their disciples were hosted by families as they traveled around the towns of Judea. It was considered an honor. It was also a cultural expectation. And the host generally did it well. Now, can't you imagine? Do you think Jesus traveled around by himself? No. I bet you Jesus had a pretty good crew. And there weren't any phones. And what do you think happened when Jesus and his crew shows up in a town such as Bethany? And a leading citizen, or someone who was a part of his, his work, has to get ready to host him. All right, how many of you fixed a last-minute last minute dinner for guests? Would five give you a problem? Huh? Fifteen? Twenty-five. Now, I know Brenda's usually got that much food left over from the day before, so it's no problem for her. <laughs> I bet you Jesus and his crew were a handful when they arrived. So you need to appreciate what Martha's going through <clears throat> and what it meant for Mary to slack off. But here's the kicker. They had the resources to host that size of a crowd. We're going to see where Mary actually uses expensive perfume to anoint Jesus. Enough that it causes Judas a headache. These were not poor Judean villagers. These were people of means. Now the passages in John and Luke both indicated that these people knew each other very well. They were comfortable with one another. John says that Jesus loved the sisters and Lazarus. So I want you to put in that context of, of history and relationship, Martha's ease at coming to Jesus and complaining. I mean, would you complain to a guest not unless you knew them very well. Martha's fine with it. She comes to Jesus and says, look, I've got a lot to do. Now, you know what the unspoken message is there. What's the unspoken message? And it's your fault. Now, that's pressure. When it's your fault, and you've caused somebody else a problem. And 
She says, Mary won't help me. Now, why does Luke pick this particular story? As we'll see, there's, there's several different things he could have picked. But why does he pick this particular story? And, it, it, and it, it's because it's not the story of Mary and Martha. It's the story of Jesus and the gospel. And where's, what's happening now? Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Now, you might want to turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Where I'm going to read 41 to 44. This is the, I think this is the key to the book of Luke. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, <clears throat> even you, had recognized on this day the things that make for peace. Read that, shalom. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground you and your children within you, and they will not leave within you one stone upon another because, they did, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. Luke is presenting Jesus throughout the gospel as the visitation of God's promise of shalom, of well-being. And Jesus has made every attempt as throughout this gospel Luke presents to touch the marginalized because the marginalized are the people who are most in need of shalom. And so as Pastor Nicole has laid out for us throughout this study in Luke, Jesus is bringing life to people as God intended it to be lived. And in the doing so, Jesus is constructing a new community, a new people of God. We, we fail often to recognize that it's from the ranks of the marginalized that this is happening. <clears throat> now, the marginalization of Mary, Martha and Mary may not appear to be that great. But we know from other sources that women were marginalized. There's so, you know, the resources don't make it quite so apparent. But they, their marginalization has been overcome because they're now part of a new community. So it isn't just that the blind received their sight. It isn't just that the lame began to walk. It isn't just that those who were sick with all kinds of things were healed from them. It, what, is, what is critical and crucial is the fact that they were woven into a new community. And Martha and Mary and Lazarus are members of that community. And they recognize that Jesus is God's agent, 
the Messiah. And they're structuring their lives accordingly. So Jesus reprimand, as I see it, to Martha. is a reminder to someone in the community that their priorities aren't straight. That she's focusing on things that are important, but not critical. And that's why he tells us, there's one thing, Martha. There's one thing. Shalom people should not allow the focus of our lives to be overridden by things other than God's construction of a new community. So Luke's making the same point twice. He makes it when Jesus talks about Jerusalem's failure, and he points it out that in a small way, Martha is doing the same thing, losing sight of what's most important. So Martha's reprimanded. But Jerusalem represents the entire people of God. And they were unable to live and construct the life that God wanted. Now, if you've got your Bibles open to John, we're going to read from there because this is where the story gets most interesting and fullest. John is writing and telling a different story. He's documenting how Israel refuses to accept God's Messiah. This chapter is critical to what is said. Chapter 11, verse 1. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, and her brother Lazarus was ill. Their brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent a message to Jesus. <clears throat> what was the message? Lord, Come. We've got a crisis here. Our brother, a member of your community, has fallen ill. Come. Now, if you look at verse 6, it says, after getting word, Jesus stayed two more days before he headed back. Think Mary and Martha... Expected Jesus to wait two days? Their message was an urgent message. But he didn't come for two days. Then he said to us, in verse 7, Then after this he said to his disciples, Let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight, those who walk during the day do not stumble because of the light of this world. But those who walk at night stumble because of the light not in them. After he's saying this, he said, our friend Lazarus is asleep. 
He meant he was dead. They thought he just meant he was asleep. And Jesus, as the following verses tell us, says that I'm glad for your sake that I wasn't there so that you can see God's glory. You and I are members of this, this community that Jesus started pre-cross. We're the post-cross edition. But we don't always get what we want. And as a, a pastor over these 50-some-odd years, I've seen many, many people who thought following Jesus was about getting what I wanted. It was about a life insurance policy that made sure that life didn't impact me. And you need to see here that even the followers of Jesus in, in this pre-cross community still had to deal with life. They, they had no... It wasn't kept at arm's length. Lazarus is dead. So Martha shows up, meets him on the way. Now, there were many of the Jews who traveled the two miles from Jerusalem to, to, to comfort Mary and Martha after Lazarus was dead. Lazarus has been dead for four days. Hear these words specifically in verse 23. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection of the last day. <coughs> Now, you can read these verses in several different ways. But if we don't get, we read the Bible with such an antiseptic spirit and attitude, we lose the drama. Their brother is dead. Jesus tarried on the way. And if you don't hear the accusation in Martha's voice, If you don't hear the grief in Martha's voice, and then if you don't hear the, the irony or the cynicism when she says, I know he will rise again in the last day. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And in the turning of a phrase, she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. There it is. Jesus, excuse me, the Messiah, the Son of God, coming into the world. And as a member of this shalom community that Jesus is creating, not even the death of her brother can drive a wedge. She's not getting a new awareness of faith. She's stating a new, her faith over again in a new set of circumstances. 
Not in the comfort of her living room. Not in the, the worshipful nature of the, of, of the synagogue. But here on the way to her brother's tomb, she reaffirms who she is in this community. And when Jesus has stated this, she takes off. What does she do? The first thing she wants to do after this feeling of expectation, she knew Mary was back at home being comforted by the Jews, and she went to get her. And Martha told Mary that Jesus had come, and they got up and left. And the Jews who had been there comforting her, thinking uh, she was going to the, the tomb, got up and followed her. Now, pay attention to the way John uses the word the Jews. The Jews are not part of the new Shalom community. The Jews are not those who are excited about what Jesus is doing. In fact, as the disciples said earlier in this passage, some of them are trying to kill him already. In verse 32, when Mary came there where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And as Jesus, be and Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But he, some of them said, could he not have opened the eyes of the blind? Could, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Even the unbelievers had a sense of who Jesus is. They had questions. So what does Jesus do? He goes to the grave. He tells them to take the, the cloth off, the burial cloth off, and he calls Lazarus out. And it says in verse 44, the dead man came out, his hand and feet bound with strips of cloth, and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And then something interesting happens. Many of the Jews who were with them believed, and others went to the Pharisees. In 47, so the chief priests and Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we to do? This man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and destroy both our holy place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You do not understand that it is better for for you to have one man die for the people than to have the whole nation destroyed? Verse 53, so from that day on, they planned to put him to death. We sometimes read the Gospels as if this is a story that just kind of stumbles along and, and people are 
you know, Jesus just kind of ends up before these people at Gethsemane. No, they were already planning to put him to death in Bethany. You see, the cross is in sight. These forces that are at work will not be stopped. We need to understand the role played by the Shalom community, the Mar Martha and the, and the Mary and Lazarus and all these others that formed a community around Jesus that became such a threat to the powers that be. If Jesus had been someone just speaking in the wilderness, if he had just been a voice, another John the Baptist, there would not have been a meeting that night. Jesus threatened their power. He threatened their authority. And from their point of view, he threatened their survival as a nation. And when they couldn't compromise him, they decided he had to die. Now, if, if we're constructing this, just as an aside, I would take the passage from Luke and I'd stick it in right here after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Because it makes sense. Why? You still win, John? Look at chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, who had, he, whom he had raised from the dead. There he gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him. And Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard. I have no idea what nard is, but it cost a lot. Anointing Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, why was this perfume, perfume not sold for 300 denarii <coughs> and the money given to the poor? And Jesus said, leave her alone. Jesus did not act alone. The people who followed him before the cross were people like you and me. But the, they came to him out of their culture. They came to him out of their belief system. They came to him having to set aside things that we don't even contemplate they had to do. We just think, oh, well, they, they heard Jesus and, and were overwhelmed by the truth, and, and they followed him. No. These were people who were deeply embedded in their communities and in its life. And they had, were confronted by God with the presence of Jesus as Jesus was God's agent. These were part of the people who had to learn how to build shalom. Do you think they were 
that much different from the people of Jerusalem? They were the people of Jerusalem. But they became the followers of Jesus because they became convinced that he was God's visitation and they had to respond with their lives. With their lives. They had to give up beliefs. They had to give up practices. They had to put their lives at risk. And if you don't believe that, did you, did you, I skipped over it, but you should note where they, after they decided to kill Jesus, they said, Lazarus has got to die too. We've got to get rid of the evidence. That, that's editorializing on my part. But that's what they were doing. So their beliefs and this living with the contradiction of being in God's presence but still having to deal with the conditions of life. <clears throat> it didn't make any difference. Being with Jesus didn't help them avoid all the situations of life that they had to live with, which is what you and I think sometimes. The cross, Paul will tell us, stands as the bridge between this, this shalom community that Jesus built pre-cross, and the one that was called out post-cross. Paul understands that the, the post-cross followers are to, going to have to do exactly the same thing that Christ had his pre-cross community do. They had to bridge the two ages, the one of the world in which they lived and the one that was coming. In Ephesians 1, Paul writes, beginning in, in verse um, 15, I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, and for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers, that the God of our Father, Lord of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Father of glory may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as to as you know as you come to know him so that you, with the eyes of your heart enlightened you may perceive what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance amongst the saints and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. What is it? It is that we have been called. We have been designated as those who will receive the Holy Spirit and Paul describes this as we have been raised with Christ from the dead and, and we are with him in heavenly places. Look in chapter 2. In verse... Verse... Five, even when we were dead through our trespasses, 
made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Paul's not speaking metaphorically, nor is he speaking of a physical place. Paul asserts that this is the mystery that that God has intended, that those who follow Christ will rule with Christ. Now, that's not political. That doesn't mean you get to lord it over anybody. That doesn't mean you get to tell people how to live. It means that you get to participate in the demonstration of the glory of God. What did that mean for Lazarus? He died. What did it mean for Martha? She served food. But she was to remember that that wasn't the, that just the, the, the mechanics of doing it wasn't what was important. It was participating in and helping to create the peace of God in the lives of people. What does it mean for you and me? It means that we are what God has made us. We reside with God and Jesus Christ in heavenly places so that we can experience his grace and demonstrate his glory. Now, there's a word, a fancy word. Eschatology. Have you heard that word? Yeah, if you've been coming to church, you've heard eschatology. Preachers like me have not been completely honest with you. Eschatology does not mean the study of the last days. Well, it kind of does. It means the study of the end of the age. Is there a difference? Well, only if you think there's more than one age. So, Paul uses the word both ways, as the end of the last days. Revelation, it's clearly the end of the, the, end of the world. A new heaven and a new earth is coming. But eschatology means that we've got to give a recognition to the end of the age. And we Christians blissfully believe that from the time of Jesus until his return again is only one age. <coughs> I told you about my grandpa and his stories. I always meant to, to take a tape recorder down and, and get them, and I didn't. Now, my grandkids are kind of hit and miss on my stories. I mean, Monroe didn't have to compete with Nintendo. So, being the resourceful man that I am, I thought maybe someday they might think worth paying attention to some of my stories, so I began writing them down. Only I'm a bit tricky. I hide them in books. Several years ago, about 10 in fact, I wrote a book in which I talked about the ages through which the family of God has moved. I think eight or 10 I, didn't, I should have looked it up this week. But I think eight or ten. And I confess to you, 
The church was never prepared. It never did good eschatology, and it was never prepared for the transition from one age to the other. Now, the age we're living in, the one we, com we quite complain about, and we say it started about 50 years ago, actually started about 400 years ago. This movement of, of, of personal rights over and individualism over against other things actually began a long time ago in Europe, and we're just now bearing fruit of it. But the church hasn't dealt well with it from the very beginning. We fought the wrong fights. So when we were told that the earth was no longer the center of the universe and that it, instead of the sun revolving around it, as it appears in the Old Testament, when, when the sun was stopped, we were told, the church just dismissed that new knowledge completely. Well, guess who proved to be right? Any of you still believe the sun revolves around the earth? That causes you a biblical problem. Because what do you do with that verse that says that God's, the sun stopped for a period of time in the sky? i tell you what you do with it. You conveniently ignore it. The church has tried to maintain control over its story rather than trying to be, as the scripture said, being led by the spirit with our, the eyes of our heart enlightened and learn new things. And, and since the church is the arbiter of all knowledge, it took a long time and it took inquisitions and excommunications for the church to finally get around to ignoring what it couldn't refute. And we still do that. And it's because we don't recognize we're at the end of the age. Well, friends, I got news for you. You can't say that anymore. We are at a turning point in history. The last 50 years have either meant that the age we're in has ripened to its fullness, or it means that something new is about to break, and scholars can't de decide on that themselves. But we don't do anything about it. We don't talk about it. We don't talk, and, and it's a matter of eschatology. It's a matter of prophecy. And prophecy is nothing more, than, as you look at it in the Old Testament, than the people of God being challenged by God to learn to live his basic principles and values in a new age. And what do we want to say? We want to say the old one was the best, and let's hang on to that old age as long as we can. Rather than trying to figure out how the gospel can be relevant to the people right now. This culture in which we live has been changing, and you can't ignore it. And if we do, we will be marching straight out of the heavenly places to which God has placed us. Here's the problem. My religion is cultural. Every religion is cultural. 
How do I sift out the gospel from the culture in which it is given to me? Most of us say it's the gospel that's not cultural. There's only one thing that the Bible says I have to believe to be a Christian. That God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. Period. Now, we add a lot of other things, but that isn't the gospel. That's culture. So Paul helps us out again. You would expect him to, wouldn't you? So, in Galatians, of all places, um, in chapter 5, Paul says that lest we lose sight of our strategic calling to abide with Christ in heavenly places, we must remember that what it means is to defeat the flesh and have the spirit become supreme. He says in 5.16, live by the spirit. I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh, for what the flesh desires is opposed to the spirit, and what the spirit desires is opposed to the flesh, for those are opposed to each other. In 19, the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, sorcery. Man, as a kid, my church made me aware of the fact that those were the works of the flesh. But somehow... We stopped. We didn't read the rest of the verse. Enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy. I grew up in a church that in 11 years added 1,000 people to the kingdom of God. We baptized 1,000 people in 11 years. Not bad, huh? At the end of 11 years, our church was 25 people larger than it was at the beginning. 25. Now, I'm not great at math, but somewhere we lost 975. Why? Well, because we knew about sexual immorality, but we didn't know about factions. We didn't know about envy. We didn't know about strife. And we never became a church that dwelt in heavenly places for the glory of God. I don't think the church has changed much since then. We were talking about it in Sunday school, and I tried not to preach my sermon there, but you tempted me. You tempted me greatly. Do you trust the people in this room? Do you trust each other with your thoughts and your struggles? Do you trust one another to have the Holy Spirit help you work out 
the difficulties in understanding the world in which we live? The flesh keeps us from doing that. <laughs> and this summer, this summer we have been led to see clearly that we are in a culture, and I think it spills over into the church, that is fractured. We have talked around this, talked around this, and talked around this, and we can't even say to one another that we need to talk about homosexuality, and we need to talk about abortion. We can't even use those words. We, we've got code for each of those, but oh, I thought maybe you were right and I was wrong, and I was waiting for the roof to fall in on me. We haven't had an honest conversation about those things and what it means to be a Christian living in the world in which we live, and I can't ever remember. And I've only had one experience with it. I was past my last church I was pastoring, and it got to be known, uh, and it was Baptist, and it got to be known in, in, in larger circles of St. Louis that in, in our church, I sanctioned and I encouraged that, and we had people who were anti-abortion, and people who were pro-abortion. And they fellowshiped together, they loved each other, and they talked to each other. And it got around it. That made us somehow different. And one morning I was at a woman's breakfast and a pastor <clears throat> from another church came up to me and pointed his finger in my bony nose and said, you liberals are going to be the ruination of the church. He didn't ask me what I believed about abortion. He didn't ask me what my family practiced about abortion. He just knew that in the church, I encouraged Christians to talk to each other because I believe that it's the Holy Spirit's job to reconcile those things and not the pastor's. He was of a different mind. That night, and I was on the Interfaith Partnership board, that night we had a board meeting and then followed by a fundraiser. And that night, we... I was being chastised because I had prayed in Jesus' name, amen. And it's an interfaith group. I shouldn't be causing divisions. I asked the rabbi who was our <coughs> chair how his prayer to open the service had been, or the meeting had been any different. And he said, none from his Shabbat prayer. I said, then why does mine have to be? Why isn't this interfaith a, a place in which each of us express our faith without Apology. Because if I don't say in Jesus' name, I'm thinking it. As we were walking out, the Bishop of the Latter-day Saints said to me, you damn fundamentalists are going to kill us. I'm sorry, that was a quote. And, and, and he said that in a Baptist church, so I guess I could quote him here. But anyway, it was my best day of ministry. In the morning, I'm a liberal. And in the night, I'm a fundamentalist for the same thing. The workings of the flesh are divisions. And we can preach about sexual immorality and, and, and talk about becoming pure, but if we do not read the whole list and we do not hold ourselves accountable for the whole list, we are 
we are hamstrung. We, we, we are crippled because we haven't dealt with the works of the flesh in our own midst. And you want to know why the church is failing? It isn't because of those people outside. It's because of us and our unwillingness, our inability to deal with the flesh. So, thank goodness Paul doesn't leave us there. He says, by contrast, the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. The greatest sign of my conceit is when you recognize that I'm right and you're wrong. Just ask me. And how will I communicate that to you? Because as, many, as soon as you, I invite you to, to express your opinions on something, I begin thinking about my rebuttal to it and don't even listen to you. Isn't there something, oh, blessed is he who has ears to hear and eyes to see? We better open our ears. You may not like to hear what I have to say about abortion or what I have to say about homosexuality or what I have to say about this, this heritage of violence that has been a part of our culture since its beginning. You may not like what I have to say about that, but if you're truly Christian and I'm truly Christian, we ought to at least be able to talk about it. We ought to be able to at least understand why each of us think and believe what we do. And if we don't, then quit pretending that the, the people who commit adultery are worse than we are. Let's pray. Father, Martha and Mary made this possible. They and others like them were willing to leave the comfort of their culture, leave the comfort of their riches, leave the comfort of a life well established to follow Jesus. And if we start having honest conversations, I have no idea where that's going to take us. If we start reading your word about what it has to say about the issues our culture has given us such ready answers for, I don't know where that's going to take us. But I do have this confidence. If we do it, as members of the Shalom community, we will continue to live in heavenly places with you. Let us desire for that to be our resonance. This we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. What? Yeah.
Who's able? Stan. No. If you're not.
We've only got one announcement, so you might as well just stand up. The Back to School Bash is about to be upon us. If you haven't signed up, you need to do so. Um, and if you haven't started praying for this ministry and the work it's doing, um, then you need to get on it. They have other needs you can contribute to as well. To summarize, Mary and Martha got me to Paul because they could talk to Jesus honestly. In the course of living life, they were not afraid to risk losing part of their culture to follow Jesus. And we are not. We're cowards. We say we give out to Jesus and we hold on to things so tightly. Some of you will leave this room complaining about the music. Some of you will leave this room complaining about the length of my sermon and my use of too many scriptures. My culture, and in my age, my sermon was just fine. In fact, I could have gone on another half hour and nobody would have said a word. So, if you want to complain about the music, you're probably happy with the sermon. And if you were happy with the sermon, you know, the music, if you're not happy with the sermon, then you probably are okay with the music. We should be okay with both. Because they're both cultural. And in the midst of that culture, God makes himself known. So go forth from this place as the children of God into a, a place that may not be as comfortable as it was when you entered here this morning. Go on a voyage of discovery with the Holy Spirit as your guide and be sure to invite some of the rest of us along. So we do this for the glory of God. You are the Shalom community. Go forth and build the peace of God. You may dismiss.